Well, look, as you know, there's been a lot of focus on the price of gasoline as of late. Uh, it has surged to record highs. A few months ago, the Alberta government, in order to help provide some relief to consumers, removed the 13 cent per liter uh, provincial excise tax on gasoline. And we did, in the aftermath of that, see the price come down. But what has happened since then? Some interesting things have, have, have been observed. For example... Uh, It appears as though when it comes to gasoline, looking at other provinces, much of that benefit from the tax cut seems to have evaporated. Interestingly, though, it still seems to be there for diesel, but maybe not for gasoline. Looking at prices elsewhere in the country, prices in Toronto on average, now keep in mind Ontario also lowered their gasoline tax, but still prices in Ontario and Toronto specifically seem to have been lower as of late than both Edmonton and Calgary. Even between Alberta's two cities, prices seem to be lower in, in Edmonton than they are in Calgary. And as some have noted, other places in Alberta uh, seem to be even lower than that. So what's going on? Why does the profit margin at the retail level in Alberta seem to be higher right now? Are consumers being gouged? Are retailers taking advantage of consumers? Are we paying more than we should? Certainly some have made that argument. The premier last week says he wants to get to the bottom. He's asked the Competition Bureau to look into this. His own uh, finance department is going to take a look into this. So what is happening on the retail side? There's a lot of things going on. The price of oil, the situation at refineries, the situation with ethanol, right? The requirement that uh, fuel be blended. So how's that all trickling down to the retail level and by extension, us, the consumer? Well, someone who's been watching all this, I'm very pleased to get his insight this afternoon. Welcoming to the program here, Vijay uh, Miralat Haran, who's uh, Managing Director with R-Cube Economic Consulting. Uh, Vijay, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. Nice, uh, nice to be here. And as you probably understand or know, I mean, you know, people get emotional about this issue. It's an important product that we all buy. The price is plastered there for all of us to see. So there's always a lot more scrutiny on, on the price of gasoline. But behind the scenes, VJ, I mean, there, there's a lot going on right now, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, thanks for having me over. So technically, there are four leading factors that affect gasoline pricing across Canada, wherever you live. Those are crew pricing. Uh, refinery margins, basically what pricing the refineries charge you, uh, and then what we call as a retail marketing margin and taxes. Now, taxes are the second biggest component after crude, but they don't change month to month. They change once a year. So let's park that out for a while. Mm-hmm. So these three components. So the lowest amongst all these components are retail marketing margins. So what are those? So basically, it's the retail profitability or the, the cost of retail, the gross margins of retailers, and the marketers who actually blend to the to the consumption spec. So there's a spec that retailers have to sell at the pump that's mandatory by regulation. So they need to blend to the requirement. And it needs two components, the gasoline from the refinery and what we call as biofuels, which is about 5% right now in Canada that they need to blend, either ethanol or equivalent. Now, the catch is they need to get these at a price. And that price is tied to what happens in the U.S. and what policies are uh, implemented in the U.S. We call that the the, uh, regulatory standards in the U.S. And they trade on a daily basis based on availability of demand and supply. Now, what's happened is that technically, Edmonton, gasoline price in Edmonton is the lowest in the country. Now, when the price of Edmonton, as we saw since 4th of July, went above the city of Toronto, which 
pays higher taxes than Edmonton, that sets some alarm bells uh, with, uh, with me. So I just started looking at the data to understand what's going on. And we found that the third component, the lowest component, uh, retailer marketing margin, was uh, almost 40 cents a liter. It usually, to put it in perspective, is about 8 to 10 cents a liter. Right. So something happened there. Uh, so I started investigating what's going on. So it is a, a gross margin. It's not a net margin meaning that it involves a lot of cost components for the retailer and the marketer. So I put in perspective, what are the cost components? So ethanol is a cost component, uh, buying the, buying the uh, product from the refiners, transportation, operating costs, so on and so forth. Out of these, the most significant factor that played was the ethanol availability to blend with the fuel spec. What, what, this is a very critical factor that explains why such price discrepancies occurred in in the last few weeks. Yeah, and it's interesting. Maybe that explains why we're not seeing the same thing happening on, on the diesel side. So there's a requirement then that, that a certain amount of ethanol be blended with that fuel. There's a cost associated with that ethanol. That, but there's some, some interesting factors going on right now. There's, there's basically a shortage, isn't there? That's an excellent point. So now in the summer season, gasoline demand supersedes diesel. And the diesel specs change for the winter, right? So that's when the biodiesel mandate changes. So again, diesel and gasoline are quite similar uh, biofuel mandates or the blending requirements are quite similar. But traditionally for the summer months, the diesel um, blending ratios are not that stringent, meaning that in the winter months, diesel requires extra blending, extra cost to make it into winter spec. So hence, you'll see that extra cost of diesel, the demand for diesel, and the, the blending spec kind of changes in the winter months for diesel. Hence, you'll see that diesel prices go higher in the winter months, come down in the summer months. But for gasoline, it's, uh, this is the driving season. In the U.S. and in Canada, this is when demand is high. But the problem is, how do we get ethanol? So if you're in coastal BC, if you're in Ontario, if you're in uh, Maritimes, you have uh, coastal access and connectivity to bio- biofuels. For example, from Illinois, you can connect to Toronto by train. Bulk of our biofuels ethanol for fuel spec is, is uh, transported by rail from the U.S. because uh, the U.S. producers uh, manufacture the ethanol that, that blends well with our fuel. So that's one of the principal reasons. We have noticed since March, end of March of this year, the rail shipments of ethanol have been delayed to inland BC, inland Alberta. Now, this is going on for a few months now because the demand in the U.S. for the biofuel just skyrocketed back to where the peaks were in 2021, meaning that they, their driving season hit a peak, demand for gasoline hit a peak. So the blending requirements for ethanol, it also hit a peak. So we are competing for the same part in the U.S., so hence... We have to pay a higher price to get that ethanol spec to blend with our fuel to meet regulatory standards. Now, you've got to bring it through rail, and rail has a longer lag time than pipelines. So, hence, you have this uh, lagging effect of, you know, lack of ethanol to blend, affecting supply, affecting the, the margins, uh, the gross margins, which is the cost margins of retailer markets. So, I suspect that's playing a critical role because if you look at camp loops, which is inland BC, yeah. as an example, as a barometer, and compared to Calgary and Edmonton, they have the exact same problem. And Imperial came uh, a few weeks ago and admitted that they're trying to find, they, they're having difficulty to find 
ethanol for blending specs and camp loops. So this is an open public article that was published. So we, we noticed that inland Canada is having difficulty getting supply and that's affecting pricing. That could be one of the major factors. It's certainly unusual to see such high margins, gross yeah. margins. Well, that's really fascinating. So, I mean, are those federal um, blending requirements? I mean, would that be one way of helping to alleviate the, the, the price on consumers would be for now to suspend those blending requirements? Uh, no, these blending requirements have been existing for a while now. Yeah. It's not that they came out of the blue. Well, exactly. It's been going on for a few years. But the problem is, or not the problem, the thing that we need to take account of is this is going to increase two or three, two or three times in the next 10 years. So that's the bigger, well, it's a speculation. There's no public document out there yet. But there's been newspaper articles speculating that there is a possibility that these standards could get more stringent in the coming years. Now, mm-hmm. that would mean that we need to produce more biofuels in Canada. I'm talking about the right biofuels to blend, or we need to import more if we can't produce it from the U.S. Now, that becomes a more... Uh, stricter issue for us, meaning that it's going to be a difficult issue to digest. Now, the key thing is the, the, the new updated regulatory standard is not finalized just in Canada. There's no documentation yet, but the government is in the process of finalizing it. Once that's out, we think it's going to be a little bit more stringent than what we have today, at least twice as much in the next 10 years. We need to prepare for supply else there is going to be another problem at place. Yeah. Also, mind you that BC follows the California LCFS standard. Now, the LCFS standard and BC's fuel standard just went up this year from last year, meaning that they became more stringent. So essentially, in somebody who lives in camp loops or meet the, the fuel consumption blend will be more stringent than last year, so they might demand mobile fuels. So hence, now we are competing with a higher demand in BC, inland BC. So this becomes a more convoluted process because it could be like a, a more stringent regime adjacent to a more, you know, less stringent regime, and then you compete for the same fuel. Curious, too, what's happening at the refinery level? Obviously, refinery margins have been really high. That's been a part of the problem. Even some of the refineries in Edmonton have had some maintenance shutdowns recently. But is, are, are they all starting to catch up? What's happening on that side? So that's an excellent question. So the refining margins that we saw in June was highest I've ever seen in, in, on record. Like yeah. it, it was like over 50 cents a liter on average, which is wow. pretty bad. In the sense for consumer, it's pretty bad. For the refineries, it's not, not so bad. Uh, but the, the, that's come down to mid-30s right now. So it's pulled back quite a bit. Uh, one of the things that our refinery margins are not set in Canada. They're set in the U.S., especially in Chicago for for Alberta, because that's where our marginal battle is. So if I'm a refiner in Alberta, I produce gasoline diesel. Now I have two choices. I sell it in Canada or I sell it in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So by de facto, uh, Canadian, uh, Canadian marketer who buys the fuel has to match the marketer who buys the fuel in Chicago or, or anywhere else in the U.S. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that the highest bidder wins the price of the commodity, in this case, gasoline and diesel. So hence, our margins at the refinery level are tied to what's happening in the U.S. So the, what we've seen uh, in some of the U.S. margins, they've been like sky high because it's the post-COVID world, a lot of driving, and, uh, you know, it's just been robust. And that's created this very high, unusual refinery margins in Canada, especially in Alberta. Now, you also had a high spot in crude pricing. But what we've seen is that crudes pulled down by at least like 10 to 15 cents a liter, 
refining margins have pulled, pulled back about 10 to 15 cents a liter. But what's sustained is that the, uh, the retail marketing margin just went up. So that was the unusual cost in Edmonton and Kamloops area. But if you look at Toronto and you look at other parts of Canada, that, that retail marketing margin did not go as high. It stayed at the regular levels. Uh, one of the reasons could be is that Vancouver has coastal access. They could import biofuels from California, uh, but we can't do that. We need to bring it to a, a, <laughs> a, a, a neighboring hub and then transport it by, by rail to blend, which is, ex, which is additional cost, which is what we're doing right now. But in Toronto, they have connectivity to Illinois and Iowa, where they, where they have one of the biggest, the region has the biggest production of biofuels, so they meet the blend. So these are the things that actually, um, you know, define the cost of retailer marketing margin. We'll leave it there. Some really important insight, Vijay. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank All you. All the best. Have okay. a nice day. All right, there you go. So there's some uh, some analysis. Vijay uh, Muralat Haran, uh, Managing Director with R-Cube Economic Consulting, that there's a, a biofuels factor here. And maybe it's not the whole story. Maybe there's more going on here, but it, it is a big component. And, and he says you, see, you saw the same thing happen at the same time in a lot of the inland in B.C., like in Kamloops and other places that you saw here in Alberta. Uh, there's a shortage in the U.S. It became a lot more costly to get that ethanol here. That added additional cost. And so you have the, the bigger margin at the retail level to make up for that cost. Okay, so we'll see what comes back. I mean, we shouldn't be afraid of, of an investigation, either as consumers or industry or whoever. Uh, so the finance department's going to look into this. You got the um, – I, well, I guess I don't know. We don't know yet if – the competition bureaus going to get involved there was a letter the premier sent to the competition bureau asking them to to investigate now it, it seems implausible to me that all of a sudden now there is this widespread collusion between competitors at the retail level to gouge consumers when for years and years and years, gasoline was cheaper in Alberta than it was in the rest of the country, that we had all of these generous retailers for the longest time. And now, I don't know where they've just decided uh, that they're going to gang up and screw over consumers. Again, to me, that seems implausible. But by all means, and let's take a look here. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly uncomfortable at some level with the idea that governments are deciding what's too expensive. Governments are deciding what a proper profit margins should be governments are going to step in and start dictating the price should be that and your profit should be that i'm going to begin in this uh, hour though with an interesting conversation about music and a piece written by our next guest the global news Dotsie, over the weekend that at last check was still one of the top trending stories people have opinions on this but here's the the backdrop if you go to the billboard charts the Billboard Hot 100, for example. A lot of new music on that, as you would expect. Uh, but there at number four is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. Song from almost 40 years ago. Also on the uh, Hot 100 is Master of Puppets by Metallica. Again, a song that's uh, over 35 years old. The Billboard Top Album Charts is uh, an interesting story as well. There's Kate Bush, there's Queen, there's Elvis, Metallica, Fleetwood Mac. What's going on here? 
Is this just about nostalgia or why uh, is old music popular today? Well, Alan Cross, music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of Ongoing History of New Music, wonders maybe there's something wrong with today's music. Maybe it's not that good. Could be fighting words to some. Maybe joining us on the line is Alan Cross. Uh, as mentioned, his latest up at globalnews.ca. Much more at a journal of musical things.com. Alan, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, the backlash has been, well, no, not backlash. <laughs> uh, the reaction sure. has been um, pretty interesting regarding this call. Now, yes. I, I want to be clear right up front that I don't necessarily take an opinion on this, although I, I probably do a little bit. But what I've been noticing is that there has been a large number of people writing about the state of current music, and they're quite concerned about its quality. And it's not just a, a subjective sort of thing. They start looking into the numbers and how popular current music is, and for our purposes, that's music released within the last 18 months, is compared to music that's older than that. And if you dig through all the numbers and look all the statistics, it appears that current music, music of the day, is becoming progressively and statistically less popular than older music. Now, why is that? Mm -hmm. And there's where the fighting starts. Right. And so this is an interesting question because we've talked about it before. I mean, in terms of how Billboard calculates its charts, it's it's much different now. And obviously, you know, a hit like Stranger Things, you know, people are rediscovering Kate Bush and, and Metallica. So, okay, there's a connection there. But as you say, it, it goes deeper than just that. It's not just that Stranger Things is, is a popular TV show and it's made these songs hits. There's, there's something deeper than that going on. Yeah. And it, it comes down to the... Very, the magic of being able to choose any one of 80 or 90 million songs with a couple of folks at your phone. Um, you are, if you're a new artist right now, not only are you competing with your peers, but you're also competing with your heroes and your heroes' heroes and your heroes' heroes' heroes. Uh, so it is very difficult to gain kind of traction. You all have the same uh, access or the, the humanity has all the same access to your song as all these other old songs, which in a previous era would have faded into the past, uh, become tainted as being your parents' music or your grandparents' music. And you don't want that because music is always driven by youth. Well, youth is not that way so much anymore. Yes, there were big top 40 hits. Yes, there were popular contemporary hit songs. But because there is such easy access to the greatest songs of all time, that's diluting the amount of time spent with current songs. Uh, and that seems to be growing. Now, again, that's where it gets interesting. Why is this growing? Well, things have changed substantially when it comes to uh, music. I'll just go, This is a very long article. I encourage people to go to global.ca, read it, and then yell at me. But <laughs> What's, what's Okay, if we go back 30 years, 1992, and you think about the music that's happening then, Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, you know, all that sort of stuff. If you were to put yourself back to 1992 and look at music that was 30 years old, that 30-year-old music from your vantage point in 1992 sounds old. 
I mean, old instrumentation, effects pedals for guitars hadn't been invented yet. The amplifiers are really primitive. Recording studio technology is, is primitive. That music sounds old. However, 2022, looking back at 1992, that music sounds like it could have been recorded today. So it's, it's, the, the, there's this, this idea that this music is, has become sonically timeless. And it doesn't really matter what era it came out in. Is it a good song? Does it have good melody? Can you dance to it? Yeah. So that's, again, what the current artists are, are competing with. The other thing was music was fresher back then because it was newer. Anything newer is going, you know, the Beatles were as big as they were because they found some of the great melodies first. And once those melodies are claimed by the Beatles, well, you really can't claim them for anybody else, right? So there, there's that issue. Um, and it, it just goes on from there. The, oh, the other thing that, that is, is concerning is that today's artists don't have the same kind of, and I'm speaking in general terms here, please don't jump down my throat, a general terms here, that there are so many artists on the charts today who have never played a single live gig. They haven't gone through the boot camp of going on tour in a van, playing in front of three people, eating corn dogs, uh, getting stuff thrown at them, you know, toughening up as an artist. They've made all their music in their bedroom on their, on their laptop, and they've become famous as a result. Once they become famous and they are supposed to play live at that point, they don't know how. They've never done it. They're being thrown to the wolves. They haven't had the opportunity to play in front of a bunch of strangers who will tell them the truth about their music in real time. So that's created a problem. Another problem is the record industry isn't really uh, fostering artists anymore the way they used to. You know, REM, for example, took five albums for them to break through. Now, if you don't break, it, break through on your second single, you're done. Move on to the next thing. So we've created a, 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 a situation where we've got all these one-hit wonders and uh, all these artists with absolutely no repertoire. You alluded to the record labels. I wonder then, you know, there's there's a whole ecosystem problem here then. And record labels, maybe they're just looking for the next big thing. You you know, you went viral on TikTok, let's let's sign you to a record deal and we'll churn out a few hits and then then we'll move on. So maybe they're not developing artists, maybe there's not the traditional ecosystem for those artists to develop. So we can blame the artists, but maybe, you know, what used to be there to, to support those artists grow that ecosystem just it doesn't exist in the same way anymore. Right, and that leads to a herd mentality on part of the record labels. They see what's big on TikTok at the moment, and they all swarm to that sound, that, that formula, and the result is, is more of the same. Let me go on and create a few more uh, discussion points here. If you're listening to current music on, say, Spotify, uh, the algorithm is going to serve up more music that sounds just like what you were listening to. And after a while, it all begins to sound the same because it's been, you know, the, the production is similar, the uh, arrangement is similar. I mean, everybody's following the super success of producer Max Martin out of Sweden, so a lot of his formulaic uh, attitudes have been uh, applied to a lot of music. Um, a lot of music is so, it's called being quantized, which means everything is exactly on the beat. Uh, to the to the accuracy of an atomic clock, and so it, it doesn't sound human. It's too perfect. Auto tune is is creating voices that are far too perfect. It's like photoshopping music. And if you compare some of this stuff that, that's out today, which has got this wonderful sheen and, and block, the beats locked in, you compare that to let's say a Motown song. There's humanity. Yeah. There's soul. There's authenticity. 
So there's some of what's going on with, with today's music. It, it, like Bob Seger says, it ain't, got, it ain't got the same soul. And it raises an interesting question. So I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, and so I'm, I'm awfully proud of what I grew up listening to, uh, or, or the boomers. I'm sure they're awfully you know, proud of what they grew up listening to. The idea that young people would be listening to that today, great. They're, they're learning what was good. But we want great music to continue. We want there to be great artists from 2022 that people are going to be excited about in, in 2052. If that's not happening, in the long run, that, that's not good, is it? No, it's it's not. Uh, I, I point out in the article uh, that you know Paul McCartney has had yesterday covered three thousand times, and that has become uh, an immortal sort of song for the ages. Uh, you know the big songs that are out today. I mean, is, is somebody going to cover? You know, is somebody going to cover Cardi B's WAP in 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 fifty <laughs> years? You know, I I, I, I don't think so, right? Another issue, which I did not address, and this is really tricky, is we have all these big big companies who are buying up catalogs. Uh, you know, Simple Minds just sold their catalog. Pink Floyd is going to sell their catalog. Bruce Springsteen sold theirs for uh, his for, for $500 million. Uh, on and on and on it goes. These uh, companies who are buying these catalogs are going to have to find a way to get their investment back. And that means... Un, un, uh, unlocking the potential, the financial, the monetization potential of these songs. So what might happen is that these older songs become even more ubiquitous in culture and society as these companies try to make their money back from these big purchases. Well, as mentioned, the piece is up at globalnews.ca, getting a ton of reaction and uh, much more to journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Anytime. All the best. Alan Cross, uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the ongoing history of new music, and much more to journalofmusicalthings.com. So stir in the pond a little bit with his piece here. That maybe there's something wrong with today's music. But just aside from his own opinion, or whatever your opinion is, objectively, there was something interesting going on, as Alan explained it. Uh, so there's a company that monitors music consumption for the record industry. It's called Luminate. Uh, so their latest report finds that current music, anything that's 18 months old or, or less, isn't just losing market share. It's becoming statistically less popular among all demographic groups. The metric known as total album consumption. Current music fell by 1.4% in the first half of 2022 compared to a year ago. Catalog music, older stuff, basically, is up by 14%. The market share of catalog music in America is 72% so far this year, with current music sitting at 27.6. So objectively, based on numbers, current music is becoming progressively less popular. Why is that? That's where the debate begins, but it's a really interesting question. Welcome back. Well, uh, just a few weeks ago, there was an event held uh, on the Peace Bridge to call attention to uh, the problem of vandalism. Story here in the Calgary Herald, a series of batter paintings will line Calgary's Peace Bridge throughout the summer in a showcase the city hopes will discourage would-be vandals. So far, it does not seem to be having the desired effect. Over the weekend, an act of vandalism caused some pretty significant destruction on the Peace Bridge. Now, it'd be nice to live in a world where we don't have to worry about this sort of thing, but, you know, the security footage captured over the weekend is a proof positive that we don't live in that world. 
somebody, for whatever reason, felt compelled to go to the Peace Bridge. The sole purpose of causing some pretty serious destruction. Security footage shows a vandal, believed to be a man in his 40s, with a hammer and bricks, smashing about 40 panels on the side of the bridge. This was around 4 a.m. yesterday, so kind of late Saturday into early Sunday. So it's frustrating. It's, it's frustrating as hell. And, and I mean, hopefully they, they catch this guy. I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of recourse through the courts where you can be on the hook for some of this damage. But on and on the story goes. This glass gets vandalized, damaged. The city's got to pay to replace it. Is there a way to stop going through this? Do we need more security or some better protection of the bridge? Do we need a different approach? Maybe just get rid of the glass altogether? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, City Councilor for Ward 7, Terry Wong, joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Councilor, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. How are you doing, Rob? Well, pretty good. I mean, your thoughts, I mean, you know, it's, I, I think it's fair to say that for the most part, this has become, you know, such an iconic part of the, the Calgary skyline. People seem to have grown a real fondness for the Peace Bridge, and yet it, it keeps getting subjected to this. No, I think you captured it really well. The Peace Bridge is a not only an icon of architecture in Calgary, but it's also part of our brand, and it's part of the brand that uh, we don't want to see disturbed uh, through uh, uh, graffiti or destruction. And yet it keeps on happening. So I don't know. What what do we need to do here? Well, I think there's a couple of things we need to do. We want to be sure that the replacement of the glass panels there are ones that's durable, as well as one that maintains the aesthetics of uh, of the building of the uh, bridge itself, and then ultimately one that's affordable, so that from future life cycle replacement maintenance costs, it doesn't cost us uh, that much to repair them. So that's the first thing we need to do. You're right. The second thing is we need to also increase our surveillance and ensure that if we have surveillance there, that they respond quickly, so that uh, you know we can catch catch the people before too much damage is done. Right. So in terms of replacing the glass, like is would it be an option to use plexiglass or, or something that, that's much more durable? Are there any kind of logistical challenges in replacing it that way? Well, there's a couple of challenges. Uh, first and foremost is the way the bridge was designed, as well as the side panel frames. They're designed to put uh, tempered glass in there, um, as the... Um, administration's told us before that the type of glass is like fitting a sh- you know foot into a shoe. They've got to be you know molded particularly to fit the particular frame. If they were to use a different type of material, we'd have to uh, not only replace the material but also replace the frame itself. So mm-hmm. again, uh, there's the architectural engineering part um, part of it. The other part of it is again the durability of the material, whether you use glass or or other other products. What about just taking the glass out? Is is that a realistic solution? Oh, no, you can't do that because no. uh, I don't know if you walked along it, but uh, easily someone can, can uh, fall through the, the uh, panel there and into the river. Okay. So there'd be a safety concern with that? Very much so, yeah. Okay, so does city council need to make this decision? Who's, who's in charge of making these decisions? Where, where does this go from here? So first off, we need a complete estimate of the... Uh, uh, repair costs. There's actually, as I was told today, 72 panels, and uh, that's far more than what was uh, estimated earlier. Yeah. Uh, the 72 panels, uh, given the cost and the labor to do that, will will be, you know, I hate to say it's just under a million dollars to replace God. it. Really? And uh, and again, the the sourcing of the material to replace it with is is something that needs to be um, you know sourced out properly. 
So we're we're looking um, for a consultant to tell us what the appropriate material will be or should be, and then council has to make the decision as to uh, the cost of tempered glass versus a, a new frame and uh, material to do that. Wow. Okay. So this is a big decision because I don't think we want to go to the, through the process of spending several hundred thousand dollars to replace all of this and, and then, you know, to wake up, uh, you know, in a few weeks, a few months or whatever from now and, you know, hear the same story where it's been damaged again, right? I mean, if we're going to make this big decision, we, we got to be careful here, don't we? Well, certainly from my perspective, we, we only want to do this once and once only in our lifetime. Right. And and uh, for, you know, for the type of price tag we're talking about, I don't think uh, taxpayers will tolerate anything more than uh, a you know, one-time replacement. So we have to do it right, and uh, we, we're researching that right now, and we're asking Calgarians to, to be patient, to stay away from the, the side panels, because as, as much as the panels are still there, the tempered glass are shattered and uh, could very well break, and, and uh, we don't want people falling into River. Right. So, so there's some concerns, but there will still be public access to the bridge in the weeks ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were on the bridge yesterday and um, people were certainly walking. We have the area taped off so people don't walk on the elevated sidewalk portion, but just stay in the center, center, um, you know, um, pedestrian and cycling area uh, as long as as long as people you know, stay in that stay in the uh, safe area, they're safe. All right. Well, some big decisions to be made. We'll leave it there for now. Councillor Wong, thanks for making some time for us here today. I appreciate this. No, no problem. Talk All right. Thank you. That's Terry Wong, uh, City Council for Ward 7, obviously, which includes uh, the Peace Bridge. So this, taking the glass out is not an option. I mean, yeah, there'd be a gap between the, the railing and in the bottom there, and you don't want anyone falling into the river. You could obviously put some other kind of barrier there, but uh, maybe that's not realistic. So do we replace it with something else? That's a pretty stunning figure. That's the first I'd heard of that number, by the way. So, what, over 70 glass panels destroyed here. Uh, so the price tag of all of this could be close to a million dollars. Like, that's pretty staggering. So when you talk about maybe trying to recoup something from the guy who did this, I mean, even if they catch him, it's realistic that this guy's got a million bucks in, in the bank. So, uh, no, probably not. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.